Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to Subliminally Correct. Taylor, are you ready to get started today? I'm ready to get started, Alex. Great. And what do we have up for today's show? So today we're going to be talking about how this show actually came into existence. What was the the idea or the ideas that spurred us to actually do this? And then after we've discussed that, we're going to be getting into some of the persuasive patterns of speech writers. In particular, I have a couple quotes from Joe Biden in the recent speech that he gave to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And I, I want to demonstrate and we're going to kind of break this thing down about exactly how, and I'm telling you it's true, Joe Biden was totally coached to give this speech, <laughs> or he re- rehearsed it like crazy to make it to make it work. And then if we have time, we're actually going to be getting into some of the dynamics of the 2016 election and how uh, some of the things that people didn't necessarily think about with that and how that whole thing went down. Wow, that sounds fantastic. And so to sort of start off and frame this whole um, podcast for our listeners, uh, basically... Um, You know, I'm a political consultant. I've worked on a number of campaigns um, over the years. And um, Taylor here is a a hypnotist and executive coach by trade um, and really learned in in sort of the the art of persuasion. And so at some point in the last year, we sort of, you know, started talking and started, you know, having long conversations over dinner, lunch about, you know, what anybody else talks about politics and current events. And, um, it was sort of weird to see our two expertise sort of align in that way where we really got how politicians were persuading people, how they framed their messages in a way that you just don't see on TV. And so, um, you know, we had a lot of unique perspectives and the more that I would tell my friends about, you know, the conversations we were having together, the more that they would come to me and say, you know, Hey, like, you got to tell the rest of us, you need to, you know, create a podcast. And, uh, I, one day I pitched it to Taylor and, um, here we are. One of the things that we've noticed increasingly over the years, I mean, it's always been true that politicians, the best politicians needed to be good orators, for example, and they needed to be able to speak correctly to their base. But I think we're just, we're noticing that this is happening more and more and the messaging is becoming more and more subtle. And there are all sorts of things that that go on in in politics where, you know, I'm looking at it from a certain perspective. You know, my background's in hypnosis and in neurolinguistics. And so I'm looking at it from the perspective of, you know, um, this is something that is purposely done in order to influence or persuade. And I watched how 
a lot of people around me just seem to not notice that or even refuse to notice it. Mm -hmm. And it really just became this um, interesting thing where I looked at it and I said, all right, what is going on here? Why is it that even somewise other intelligent people uh, seem to just fall hook, line, and sinker for certain types of messaging that perhaps cater to their values or their way of seeing the world? And why is it that, um, you know, with the election of, you know, Donald Trump or that, you know, other types of races, what what is happening here with the with the discourse or dialogue? Because it's definitely different than it was 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's, it's just changed so dramatically in the way that information is disseminated, in the way that persuasion is happening and in the way in which we're being influenced all the time by these messages that are, again, increasingly more subtle and the tactics and strategies that are used are becoming increasingly, um, you know, more widespread in their applications. So that's that's what's led me to be interested in it. Right. And it's, it's sort of one of those things um, where advertising had figured out a lot of these tactics a long time ago. And it's almost as if we, you know, have a built in distrust of the messaging there and sort of have a little bit uh, a little bit more of a skeptic eye to those types of things. But mm -hmm. there's just something about when we listen to the politician that we like that all of that goes out the window. And um, and uh, that's really sort of a fascinating connection. And I think that it's important because, A, it's extremely useful as a political consultant myself. This is something that we can train politicians on and we can train them to be more persuasive as a voter. Uh, I think it's really interesting and really important for us to keep this in mind um, when we are, you know, watching that political ad or seeing that politician speak that it sort of levels that playing field so that we know, um, you know, what is what's happening, what's being done to us or what um uh, what our own thoughts are to be more aware of them. Yeah. And one of the, the real threads about this that I'd like to emphasize is that persuasive devices are morally neutral, meaning that there's no morality in them or without them. So, you know, how someone uses those persuasive devices or how someone influences another people person is up to what is their intention and what are they trying to do? And I think that what's happened in a lot of politics is that the the honest and true intentions of some politicians that otherwise might win out are not heard because they're not persuasive enough. And the um, less than uh, less than wonderful intentions of other politicians are actually, you know, rising to the top only because they know how to say it. Now, that's right. always been true. But I think that the the level of hearing that we have, like you point out the example of advertising, it's totally true. Like now mm -hmm. we have ad blindness. People are not as easily persuaded. They have, you know, resistance, sales resistance, you know, all of that. Um, what we need to have is a little bit of a little bit more political resistance, except we need to have it on both sides. But of course, what's happening is, is that as emotions are engaged and as we get people at that emotional level, what happens is there, there are certain parts of their brain that just turn off and they, they can't hear anything that doesn't support their message anymore or doesn't support their way of thinking about it. Right. And 
the, the, the broader picture and the big idea with this is that, you know, if we can get people more versed or more able to think about this in a more holistic way, they're going to be able to, to listen to a politician and say, OK, I'm going to vote for that person because the message they're saying is um, it's 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 really core to what I think that is important versus I'm going to vote for them because they have an R next to their name or a D next to their name, or I'm going to vote for them because the news outlets seem to like them, or I'm going to vote for them because they haven't committed some major scandal, right? It's like, these are all mm-hmm. bad reasons to vote for somebody. <laughs> and that's that's why we find ourselves in these situations in our country where it's like, you know, are we really as... Are we really getting things done as quickly or as efficiently as we would like to? Well, we could be, except we're all speaking different terms. We're all talking in different ways. So today, what we have available is that um, I was reading a news article, and the news article was talking about this speech from Joe Biden, and Joe Biden was talking to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and this was a great speech. I mean, it was a really, you know, a wonderful speech that that he was uh, that he was he was talking about. He started off with this language idea where he said, you know, why is it that America is a world leader in in effect? Um, that's a paraphrase. But he said he said it's not just and listen to the way he uses words in this example. He said it's not just the example of our power, but the power of our example. Here's an audio clip of that. That America's ability to lead the world is not driven just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example as well. That sounds kind of similar to the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, or it's not just the X of Y, but the Y of X. So this is a very common structure of language. And when you think about it, what are the odds that Joe Biden just came up with that Mm-hmm. You know, off the top of his head, off the cuff as the first thing he was going to say in his speech. Probably mm-hmm. not very high. OK. And no, he had that planned. He planned out how to do that. But the thing about it is when you listen to him, he sounds absolutely, um, absolutely calm. Like it's just something he came up with off the top of his off the top of his head. Here's another thing he says. We're walking down a very dark path. It's not alarmists, but walking down a very dark path that isolates the United States on the world stage and as a consequence endangers, not strengthens, endangers American interests and the American people. You know, first impressions, Alex, what do you get from that when you're listening to that to that <laughs> idea? Yeah, it conjures up all of these images, right? It's it's yeah. um, building that that uh, image of you walking down a very dark path you're isolated you're alone maybe you're scared and then he sort of amplifies that right with it's not alarmist he's saying i'm not being hyperbolic like this is real danger that you are now experiencing and then he goes back to that image again we're walking down that very dark path isolated and that they're you know that this has consequences yeah one of the things that we say and when we're training hypnosis students and we say it over and over and over again is that you know our subconscious mind wants to protect us and we say the subconscious mind responds to dangers 
real or imagined dangers. And so when he has us step into that type of path, when he has us step into this scene, it's, it really doesn't feel too good. We're walking down a very dark path. You know, I expect for a boogeyman or a mugger or, you know, something terrible is going to happen when you're on this alone, dark path. I can imagine it's cold. <laughs> he doesn't say it's cold, <laughs> but it feels cold, right, um, to me. And mm-hmm. and so this is one of the ways that that he's using words that he's using words to already start to paint a picture in, in a person's mind. And, and now, he, yeah. And now notice too when he's uh, the association that he's using with that too. He's using the words of we. Um, he's not saying that that I worry about walking down this very dark path. He's not speaking for himself necessarily there he's basically taking his own perspective and projecting that onto everybody else in the audience yeah definitely it's like okay this is what we do okay so and at the last part of it there he says endangers american interests so listen to this endangers american interests and the american people now a lot of people have accused donald trump of being very broad in his languaging Okay, but this is one of the things that, if you think about it, almost all politicians out there today will say something similar to this. We're talking about endangering American interests. Well, what are those specifically? Which interests? Whose interests are we talking about? Okay, um, are we talking about um, interests economically, politically? Are we talking about interests socially? It's very undefined, and as it's undefined, it allows the person hearing it to fill in their own definition. And then here is my favorite uh, phrase that politicians use, the American people. (laughs) Who are the American people? Well, apparently, either that is, um, you know, males and females and whites and non-whites Okay, and all religious denominations, and the young, and the old, and the wealthy, and the poor, and the, you know, it's like, who specifically are we talking about? We don't know. Okay, so he's, he's already starting to paint a picture and allow, actually, to allow us to paint our own picture of what this could be or what it could mean. And that's what's really important, too, is that it allows your own mind to come up with this as if it was your own idea, when really he's the one who's suggesting all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And here's another clip of Joe Biden. This one's about a minute. This was the most quoted part of his speech. Go ahead and take a listen to this. How many of you, when, and I mean this sincerely, how many of you, when the president was elected, were either happy or bemused or a little embarrassed or not quite sure, but not, not really fundamentally worried about our democracy or the prospect of an international conflict, a nuclear war. How many of you now, whether you voted for him or not, are beginning to wonder whether or not the very roots, the moral fabric, the invisible moral fabric it holds is the buoyancy that holds everything up is eroding in a way that is literally dangerous for our democratic institutions. Wow. 
this here is such a powerful example of what we would call hypnotic language. And it's an example of covering all possibilities as you're describing something. So what is he saying here? He's saying, how many of you? So he's inviting people to kind of raise their hands with this. And it's like, how many of you are breathing? <laughs> Everyone raises their hand. How many of you are not breathing? The other half raised their hand. How many of you are sitting? How many of you are standing up? Right? So it actually invites them to do that. So how many of you were either happy or bemused or embarrassed or not quite sure? And it's really going to be everybody. It's everybody. Okay. And then you see when he has it be everybody, then what he has an opportunity to do is to actually take everyone who's raised their hand and to say, well, because you just raised your hand at that, here is what's true. Here is what is real in your, in your life. Here's what has to be true about your politics based on the fact that you just raised your hand to my very general question. But notice how it didn't seem general. Okay, it kind of seemed like he's just talking. Okay, he's just describing something about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then he, he continues, but now are really fundamentally worried. <laughs> It's just a weird way of phrasing it. Really fundamentally worried about our democracy or the prospect of an international conflict or nuclear war. So so this is, um, what might you say about that bit right there, Alex? He's using, A, he's using even more ors as well. So now we've got everybody raising their hand for the first part. Now we're jumping into, well, that means that x y and z which are all negative things but sort of gets everybody to choose their own outcome that all aligns with sort of what he's trying to um message here yeah and i think that in that particular way he's also talking to people who may have voted for donald trump okay but are not happy with him anymore or they didn't vote for him and they're not happy with him um, and, and he's kind of speaking to this idea that, you know what, there's really nothing good happening here in this administration. Um, so he, he's able to to frame it in that particular way, you know, based on where he takes this quote next. And then he continues, he said, how many of you now, whether you voted for him or not, okay, there's again the targeting of the messaging, are beginning to wonder. All right, now let's just pause for just a second here. This is what we call a presupposition of awareness, okay? We talk about this in, again, hypnosis classes, which is that, you know, have you ever begun to wonder just how much you could relax now, okay? Have you ever begun to wonder about the prospect of our democracy succeeding? Have you ever begun to wonder about the prospect of our democracy failing? Have you ever begun to wonder if you voted for the right person? Well, if you weren't before... You are now, because by the structure of the words and the language, it actually calls your attention to the fact that something different is happening. So how many of you are beginning to wonder, we have a language pattern there, whether or not the very, and and here's, we go back to description, the Mm -hmm. very roots of the invisible moral fabric. Now, what kind of fabric do you think this is, Alex? Is it cotton? I mean, it can't be cotton, right? (laughs) It's got to be some sort of synthetic, obviously. Well, Mm. I don't know. Synthetics are probably made in China. They might not like that. 
What do you think? <laughs> but what caught me was the the very roots, because if you think about it, we go back to the very beginning where he's talking about walking down that very dark path. And so for a lot of people, myself included, I'm thinking, oh, a wooded path that might have roots and the, it's now eroding. Um, it's eroding, is, yeah. Right, and it's eroding. Um, all very, uh, very imaginative, very... Um, uh, uh emotional right there it's bringing you back to sort of his beginning and it's and it's going to be dangerous so here we've got a future tense it's going to be dangerous for democratic institutions okay now again which institutions are we talking about are we talking about the democrats and their institutions are we talking about the fact that the united states is a democracy and those institutions Right. I think that that this wording is is done on purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, what makes you think that this was so well planned and not sort of spur on the spur of the moment and not sort of something that some speech writer writer just wrote up? I think that it could have been it could have been on the spur of the moment, and if it is, then I would I would suggest that he's been trained really well to be able to speak like that. Um, I, I doubt that it was on the spur of the moment, though. I think that it was rehearsed. And I say that based on the other times that I've heard Biden speak. He doesn't speak like this. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah, he, he, he might be able to speak in, in a similar way, but he's not quite that illustrative. He's not quite that metaphorical. He doesn't tie it together in, in, in that powerful of a way. And it was a prepared speech. Okay, they announced it ahead of time. He knew that he was giving this speech. No doubt he had coaching for someone who coached them and said, oh, you know, this is what, you know, the type of thing you need to say or just literally a speech writer, you know, wrote it. Right. Man, what other politicians speak like this? Well, you know, <laughs> all of them that are good. Okay, all of them that are good, not just politicians. But anyone who's been influential throughout history has been able to speak in a way that captures attention, that captivates the imagination, that leads you from point A to point B without you having to do too much to do Mm -hmm. it. So what's happening here is, is that we're no longer in a very analytical process. We're not analyzing about, oh... Is this thing that this person said, do we need to fact check that fact or not? Is this particular aspect that that a politician is saying, is it correct or incorrect? Instead, we've gone into this emotional realm where we're starting to talk about, well, how do you feel about this? Okay, how do you feel about what's going on? And if you feel inside of you that in some way, it's like you're walking down this dark path the very moral fabric of who you are, and it's an invisible moral fabric, is being eroded step by step, day by day. It's just being eroded you know, with you. Well, what happens is, is that this is the way that all speechwriters um, will write speeches because what, it, what has worked throughout history. And you know, one um, speaker who really comes to mind or one great orator, you know, we just celebrated his day, you know, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. If you listen to his speeches, you know, the guy is incredible at metaphors, at analogies. 
Okay. You know, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing him, but you know, I, I know only when it is dark enough, can you see the stars? Right. So that's, that's Martin Luther King. And that, you know, if you think about that idea, it's like, oh, I have to put myself now in this visualization of the darkness and the stars and mm-hmm. anyone, regardless of their education level can get that. And that that's significant. Right. And sort of the, um, the distraction of the conscious mind right there and of that analytical part of your mind where Biden in this example is asking these questions that on the face of things might seem analytical. They're asking you a question. They're asking you to analyze, but they are so leading and they're so open-ended and there are so many possibilities that you could fall into that it checks out and it slides past your, your conscious analytical mind and gets you into that imaginative place. Yeah, absolutely. And where else did this happen, by the way? The 2016 election. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, we had two candidates. Well, two that made it to the, to the end anyway. Right? Two that Donald mattered. Trump, the two that mattered. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And we know what the result is now, obviously, what the result of this has been. The thing that I'm aware of is that language played a huge role into it. And the ability to not talk only analytically, but the ability to captivate emotionally, which, Mm -hmm. you know, like it or not, that's what Donald Trump did. And he did it through fear and he did it through um, talking in a way to his base and to the people that were listening to him in a way that they could emotionally. Right. Again, this is not analysis. And sometimes. I, sometimes I feel that certain groups of people actually pride themselves on their lack of analysis, on their lack of you know, <laughs> critically analyzing things. And I think that, you know, he was able to tap into those very primal emotions. They're attacking us. We need to resist. Okay. They're coming into our country. We need to build a wall. It's very simple. You know, even a very young child can understand that. And as a result, you don't need to go into this big debate, which I think that a lot of politicians try to do. They try to win on the facts. Right. Right. And uh, that brings us into our into our next sort of topic of what happened in 2016. What was it that really went on that um, was the difference in the styles between the different candidates? Okay. And, you know, I think that Trump was polling good next to or Bernie was polling better next to Trump than than Hillary. And I think it was because Bernie Sanders also had that kind of wild guy factor, you know, with it. Mm -hmm. Did did you notice something like that? You know, here's the thing is, um, yes, I think that Bernie Sanders definitely had a style that was very, um, very similar to Donald Trump's. Um, I always, throughout the entire primary campaign, I was always saying that uh, Bernie and Trump are sort of two sides to the same coin. They, you know, are fighting for very different things, but they still have the same style and they still have the same way that they get their message across and the same way that they sort of demonize their opponents. Um, I think both are, you know, frankly, um, can, can sort of be damaging to some of our institutions at times. But um, I think they both had a very similar way of communicating to the average person, both through, you know, blaming and, uh, you know, blaming the other and then um, discrediting legitimate institutions. 
Um, uh, and sort of that speaks to a certain, you know, portion of America. Um, there were a large group of people who already believed that and were looking to place blame and they'd rather have somebody, um, who did that effectively than somebody who, um, you know, maybe had a little bit more of a, a hopeful traditional message. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, uh, style of communication, is something that the marriage and family therapist, Virginia Satir, um, she had what's been modeled from her different, what are called Satir categories. And these categories of being are different archetypes that people can take. And there's one out there that's called the blamer, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of finger pointing, aggressive, you know, tight throated, you know, this is the way it is. And it's my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. You better do what I say or else. Right. And I think that both Trump and Bernie galvanized that in a certain way. They, they both brought that out of the voters in, in a really, you know, in a really kind of way. And um, I think that Hillary didn't necessarily. So what would you say is the difference in the in the in the styles from if you were to characterize it like, OK, this is Trump's style. This is Bernie's style. This is Hillary's style. What would you say? Hillary Clinton, like she came back from 2008 and, um, you know, had a lot of stylistic differences between her and um, Barack Obama. And I think that, you know, Robbie Mook for, you know, did the Lord's work in sort of changing a lot of her, um, you know, her intonation and um, sort of the way that she conveyed her message across. So she was leaps and bounds more effective in sort of getting to that, you know, sort of that direct in your face, um, I'm going to point at you and, and, um, and blame. But, um, I think that it was stilted and came across as, um, as ineffective. It, it came across as artificial. Whereas you have people who were naturals really, you know, galvanize, you know, the electorate. You had, you know, Bernie and Trump who, were naturals at all of this and had been doing it their entire lives to where it was second nature for them. And so I think that sort of that authenticity came across, um, underneath as well. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's her natural style. Right. And when she did like step into that zone, people could detect that it wasn't, um, authentic and you know, that's maybe what drove up her levels of distrust. I think that, uh, you know, a part of that is also it's who was she trying to communicate to and who was it that they were trying to communicate to. And I think that it's it's hard at times to be that kind of blaming, forceful, powerful, I'm going to shove it in your face kind of figure. And at the same time, be like, OK, I'm going to take the higher ground here. Right. When they go low, we go high. That that type of thing. Right. Isn't it hard to do both? Right. Because at that point, you're, you know, sort of splitting. You've got to, you know, hang on to the people that you've already got in your corner. And then you've got to, you know, reach out to the people that, you know, you're in risk of losing or the people that you need to, you know, bring into your circle. And that's, um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how she could have done it. I I think that she did the best that she could. Um there's a, I think there's a legitimate debate in, in politics and um, we can maybe have some of our guests later on, um, talk about this further, but you know, do you run to your base? Do you run to those people who are already in your corner and, you know, 
um, receptive to your message? Or do you um, try to, you know, reach out and maybe take your base for granted and reach out to those middle of the road people, those people who could be easily persuaded? Um, I think there's an argument that you can make for both. Um, And uh, I think, you know, in my opinion, I'd say run to the base. It worked for Trump. It worked for, you know, it worked for Bernie for a little bit. Um, but um, if, if his base liked him, his base loved him. But the problem is it wasn't a winning strategy for him. He did only that. And the fact that he couldn't bring on minorities um, was, uh, you know, was why he couldn't win. Um, if he could get minority and minority women on board, he would have won the primaries. Um, we saw that in South Carolina. Um, I was in South Carolina for the primaries. And um, it's funny. We literally targeted just old black ladies. <laughs> and um, it was, uh, you know, these are the people who were wildly supportive of our message. They uh, already liked her. And uh, she could communicate well to them. And, um, you know, Bernie tried. He hired a lot of African-American staff down there. Um, uh, but, um, you know, his base was, uh, you know, the old, old white men and, um, every rally you'd go to was filled with old white men for Bernie and really? old black ladies for women or for, for, uh, Hillary. And, um, right. I guess maybe one moment in, in South Carolina that I think really illustrates this is that there was the Martin Luther King day, um, parade and, um, both candidates came down for this. Um, Bernie was a little more last second, um, but they both came down and they both walked in the parade. And um, then at the end, they were given an opportunity to give a speech. And um, Hillary gave, you know, a fantastic speech. She got up there and and really spoke to the African-American voter, talked about the Charleston shooting and, um, you know, really drove home sort of the history of you know racism and um and the culture and um then it was bernie's turn and he got up there and he talked about the the income inequality he gave his his standard speech that i'm sure everybody last year could recite (laughs) from heart the top one percent millionaires and billionaires and all of that um and um you know all of the uh, all of the people that walked away from that were like, why is he talking about millionaires and billionaires? You know, I'm just trying to like, you know, not get shot walking down the street. And, um, it's sort of, um, yeah. you know, one Reality of those moments check. where, it, you know, it turns around and, and somebody's message that's appealing to their base doesn't reach out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how something like that, where that sounds to me like, it was both deliberate and an error in his staff's judgment to not address the specific stuff like that. But if you watch, for example, um, Hillary Clinton's speech in the primaries uh, when she when she won the primaries, um, it was very much about okay, I'm going to cover this thing and then I'm going to cover this and then I, and then this and then mm-hmm. this. You know, it was it was obviously rehearsed, and yet. Those are the things that when people talk about Hillary Clinton, they don't like, like, like certain people don't like it. I'm not saying everyone doesn't like it, but it obviously turned some voters off 
Right. And, and when I talk to people, that's what they that's what they say. They say, well, I can't trust her because of, you know, because of this and because of that and because everything's rehearsed. Do you think that was because of her? Because it's obvious like this wasn't anything new, like politicians have been doing that type of thing for quite a while. And she's been in politics for a really long time. Is it because of her or is it because of some other factor Did the tide suddenly change? Um, was it because people were hearing it differently? Was it because of an influx of millennials? And what are your thoughts on that? I think this is a tough question. Um, I think it starts with the way, I mean, obviously there's some sexism at play. I think we should, you know, sort of say that up front. I think that that's definitely something that was pervasive in the election. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who were closed off to her message just because she was a woman. That aside, I think that, um, I think that there was a narrative already out there about Hillary being untrustworthy and that, you know, she was carrying all of that baggage from Bill Clinton and, um, there, there, well, that's sexism itself, right? Oh yeah. I suppose a lot of that can be traced back to sexism. Um, but I think sexism aside, um, even without the sexism, there was still that narrative out there that she was this untrustworthy, like sleazy politician. And, um, at the, you know, for decades it had been only on the right that we're screaming this. There was a good, when she was secretary of state, she was the most popular politician on earth, um, by polls. But then when she began to run for office and she had a primary opponent, Bernie, he, you know, took the obvious move of latching on to all of those arguments. And, you know, maybe it wasn't him personally, but it was a lot of people on his staff and it was a lot of people sort of in the larger orbit who sort of seized on that opportunity to build on that narrative and to keep on driving that from the Republican world into sort of the democratic circles. And so then when we end up with, you know, a competitive primary where we now have a bunch of millennials who didn't grow up in, you know, paying attention to politics when they were 16, um, just now being introduced to Hillary Clinton and they're being presented with all of these conspiracy theories, um, about her killing her lawyer and (laughs) all of that. Um, you know, it's uh, never heard that one. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. She killed her lawyer. Yeah, Damn, and, Alex, and that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> this was like buried in him in Virginia. The guy committed suicide or something. But anyway, wow. uh, um, the uh, the kids had never heard that before, and so all they heard was that Hillary was you know evil and untrustworthy. And even though Bernie voted for a lot of the same things that Hillary did and had a very similar record over the decades there hadn't been that narrative about him and people didn't know who he was and he was the blank slate and he was able to, you know, define himself before Hillary or before anybody else could define him because nobody was taking shots at him. The Republicans didn't want, um, you know, didn't want to aid Hillary Clinton. They wanted a competitive primary, so they weren't going to attack Bernie and Hillary at the beginning, at least until, Oh God, like, may um or june yeah it wasn't until like the summer until the first debate that she actually started 
um, attacking him directly, she gave him plenty of space for him to define himself. And so and then you end up with people who have, you know, a long held belief about her and and um, positive view of him. I think it's a variety of factors, but I think we cannot underestimate the degree to which um, Hillary Clinton's, you know, her her body language was that of a very reasoned, um, calm, very, you know, careful type of person. And that with the narrative, of course, can be spun in a certain way, you know, no doubt. Um, but when you're, when you're dealing with a, a lot of people who are going, whoa, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. I'm just trying not to get shot on the street. And the reality is you take a person like Donald Trump, who's very, very powerfully expressing a message or someone like Bernie Sanders, who's very, very powerfully expressing a message and they're going to get more airtime for it. Right. They're going to get more airtime, you know, for for doing that. So I don't know, you know, what in particular about that segment, you know, millennial uh, uh, women would, you know, turn them off specifically to, to Hillary's message. I, I do think there is some sort of disconnect, though. You know, it, it, it wasn't the same the same woman that was in their generation. It maybe have influenced their their mothers, but it didn't influence them as much. Right. I don't know the statistics. What do you know the statistics of how many voted for how many had actually voted for for Hillary? Oh the, god. Uh, millennial women? Well, there's a difference. There's uh there's millennial white women um and right. there's millennial uh <laughs> black women and millennial black women um I think if I remember correctly at least in the primaries um, were supportive of Hillary and that it was the millennial white women that overwhelmingly went Bernie and so pushed the whole, you know, millennial women category demographic over to, um, over to him. And I think there's, there's one other thing, which is that Trump had the ability to continue promoting himself, even in the midst of all of the things that were, that were happening, right? Yeah. Trump could create... Um, and maybe this is something too, um, I think we should discuss. Trump was able to create a new outrage that distracted everybody from the last thing and sort of kept us in this constant state of confusion. And that's something that I think is, um, maybe a little bit more applicable to your expertise in hypnosis. Cause one thing that, um, I think is really effective in, um, in changing people's beliefs and behaviors. Um, we know that confusion is that tactic that gets sort of, that distracts people's conscious minds because they're focused on, you know, sort of the state of being confused and it occupies that angle. Whereas once you're in that state of confusion and you're, you have delivered to you a very clear um, and concise message that you're more compelled if you're already receptive to that message to follow it. Yeah. It, what he's doing is hijacking the limbic system of the body, right? This is the, the, um, fight or flight, you know, type of response that when, when he goes in and he says, all right, I'm going to create chaos and confusion. And this is why the guy went undetected for so long as a serious candidate. Okay, because people said, you know, this is crazy. 
I haven't, you know, politicians don't do this. They don't come out and say, I'm going to build a wall. Mm-hmm. Like what? Mm-hmm. It sounds kind of crazy. You know, I'm going to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. They're like, you're going to alienate a huge swath of the population. This guy is going to never win. But the thing, you know, it's kind of like um, one of the the themes that Trump is really good at is being visible. He's really good at being out there. And um, I think politicians can be better or, or, or worse at this, depending on how comfortable they are with that visibility and that pressure of being kind of in the spotlight. And uh, one of the things is that criticism, um, criticism is not always bad because criticism draws attention to you. Is this sort of like the um, the all press is good press? No, I, I don't know if it's that that all is good, but I think that so long as you are communicating to 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 some people, you know, at least then they're paying attention and they're they're. They are engaged in a particular way emotionally. See, when people were hating Trump, they were talking about him. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's like, we hate Trump. We and, hate Trump. And we not hate, not know. only were they talking about him, but they right. were they were galvanized to the point where they, to somebody who maybe was indifferent to Trump or either side, they might have sounded like a crazy zealot. It's like somebody screaming at the top of their lungs about how crazy Trump is which is maybe pushing them further away from the side that they're trying to get them to. Yeah, and this is a big theme that I think that it's a dangerous theme, by the way. It's it's one that I am kind of sad that the U.S. is going in this direction because, you know, the U.K. has been going in the same direction, you know, with Brexit and, and all of these things, that it's the theme of partisanship it's the theme of you know what i'm going to go more toward my side so if i'm a liberal i'm going to become more liberal and i'm going to become you know extremely now wherever you fall on that spectrum right because i know people who are kind of like um you know we'll call them light liberals can we make up that term they're light liberals (laughs) okay (laughs) they're they might be they're leaning down liberal they're 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 the leaning dem right so but then there are people who are kind of like solidly there and then there are people who really they have some pretty um progressive is the nice term of it but they have some very progressive views you know with with regard to it and what i found is that you know in in monitoring my facebook feed <laughs> that very scientific uh, yeah totally and in, in, in doing that that Whichever side you're on, it doesn't really make any difference, you know, because both sides are posting things that are crazy. Um, But the question, I think a big question there is, which one is more effective in galvanizing people to vote for political campaigns or to to vote for their candidate? Right. Right. Uh, Which, you know, what is it that, that does it? And I think there's this idea out there that you really need to, you know, light a fire under someone's butt to get them to actually go and 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 do something but i think that if you do that too much then you get this kind of flip-flop you know the truth is if you were in a normal social gathering with someone and they started screaming you know uh at the top of their lungs for any side you would go okay maybe that person needs a little bit of private space i'm gonna go over here for a moment and right i think the answer really comes down to math I think if, as you know, 
as a data guy, um, I always go back to, you know, what's the makeup of the electorate? If you've got an election that's maybe an off year, an election where all of the more moderate people drop off and aren't going to come out, and so only the base is going to show up, you can win by running to the base. You can win by, you know, galvanizing these people and really driving up, you know, your voters. If you're in, you know, a general election and it's a lot more competitive, you really do run that risk of alienating people um, and and really turning people away. And um, I think it's sort of that fine line of A, A, calibrating to what the what the electorate looks like um and then also calibrating to what your opponent is doing um paying attention to which tactic they're using and then also i think paying attention to what works for your candidate um if your candidate sucks at you know that galvanizing then stick to what you're good at or if your candidate is terrible at bringing both sides together stick to what you're good at because if you're taking the tactic that is not natural for your candidate it's going to come off as phony and it's not right. going to work it's it's amazing and and that's when you think back to that speech in in South Carolina where Hillary gave the speech and then Bernie gave the speech maybe Bernie's idea right there was you know what I'm just going to do what yeah, I'm good at maybe Right. I'm I'm really really good at this whole you know what the corporate bankers and the rich people are robbing us of all of our money and you know what this country is um you know governed by the top 1% and, right. and his, we, you know his, we can't allow that his calculus was was um I'm if I try and you know deliver a message specifically to you know that I've never given before, it's going to come off as fake and it's going to be worse. Like I'd rather give a bad speech that's the same one that I've been giving than try and change it and come off even worse. And and this is one area where Hillary was actually much better. And, you know, if, if the circumstances were different, if the, like you talk about kind of moves and counter moves, okay, mm-hmm. what is it that the that your opponent is doing and what do you do in response? If the environment that she had found herself in was different, there there was definitely a possibility that she could have pulled that thing off by a landslide. Right. Uh, but it just wasn't, you know, the framing and all of all the different things that we're going to be exploring here within the podcast about how does all this stuff work? We're going to break it down for you. So there's a couple of things with the clothing that was more interesting than it had been in previous years that I think spoke to people's subconscious. We've got, we've got Hillary Clinton on a number of occasions deliberately wore bright white. Yes. And the rationale that had always been going around about that was a, it was a call back to the suffragettes and uh, for her acceptance of the nomination and the DNC convention, she wore that bright white and B it really stands out on camera in front of a dark backdrop and it really pops. And then you've got sort of Donald Trump who in every scene that you see him in every location, he's wearing his stupid red tie and oversized jacket, (laughs) his oversized suit. 
And everywhere he is, he looks exactly the same. And um, it's very deliberate. And where other candidates were, you know, taking off their ties and and wearing just like a button down farmer's, uh, you know, plaid shirt, um, he'd be in his full suit flying around in his helicopter at the Iowa fair telling people he was Batman. Yeah, with the American pen. Don't right. forget the pen. Right, with the American pen. That's larger. If you don't have a pen, you're not a real American. <laughs> we all know that, right? Um, there's something that's very deliberate behind that. I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, it's it's classical conditioning, right? It's anchoring. So, you know, in, in, in doing that, when he shows up exactly the same every time, you know, he makes sure to make an impression, you know, every time. And, I mean, his his suit being oversized, I think, is a is a generational thing. And break that down. What what is uh, classical conditioning, and what what's anchoring? Yeah, so classical conditioning, right? If you've heard of the idea of uh, Pavlov and the dog, right? Uh, Pavlov gave you know waved a steak in front of the dog. The dog naturally salivated in anticipation of the steak, right? And then he would ring a little bell, and basically he paired up the ringing of the bell with the salivation of the dog and and the steak. Well, guess what? It doesn't only happen with dogs and steak. Uh, this actually is happening all of the time, that whenever a person is um, doing something unique and, you know, in a, in a really well-timed way, something whereas a stimulus is introduced repeatedly that is paired along with an emotional state, well, the stimulus is then going to trigger the emotional state if it's set up correctly. And so there's all sorts of things that politicians will do to purposefully anchor uh, anchoring is another term for classical conditioning to purposefully condition those responses into a person. So, you know, a great example of anchoring is slogans or, for example, mm-hmm. make America great like, again. Yeah. And, and the hat. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you see the that hat. Stupid hat. The, the, <laughs> the hat, whether it's stupid or not, is kind of a when, matter of when, perspective. When Some that, people like it. The thing about I it mean, is that when that hat came out, when that hat first came out, it's kind of a trucker hat. Yes, really. that's exactly what I'm saying is that I had a very visceral reaction to it. And I think everybody had a different reaction to it. I think that the the millennial younger urbanites like myself sort of uh, reacted in disgust like, uh, you yeah. know, like he's he's a he's a trucker. He's speaking to like 50 year olds like, what? like this is the tackiest thing I've ever seen. But if you go out to... Um, you know, rural Wisconsin, you're going to see those hats everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and it's also red, right? Well, red, you know, Republic, uh, color of the Republican Party, right? Mm-hmm. So that's number one. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, sometimes it's red, it's white. we're Republicans. Okay, right? Yeah, okay, sometimes. So, you know, we've got... You know, the, by the way, how in the world did they they manage to do that? You know, it's like we had McCarthy in the in the whole, yeah. uh, you know, the the Reds and the Red Fever and everything, and the Republicans somehow adapted that uh, <laughs> that as their color. I don't, I don't, I don't really get that. Um, but uh, but you know, it's red. But you know, the color red, of course, has certain characteristics and qualities. You know, you can uh, quick Google search is going to show you a lot of them, which mm-hmm. is that red attracts attention. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a reason why, um, you know, women wear red lipstick, you know, for example, because it attracts attention. You know, it's it's simply something beyond our logical ways of thinking. It's it's not done within the 
uh, most evolved parts are the the least evolved parts of our brain, the newest to evolve, right? It's mm-hmm. actually done in a very primal way in the the parts of our physiology within our uh, within our brain that respond very primally to things. So we respond really primally to the color red. The color right. blue, on the other hand, is associated with what? Calmness, right? Trust, okay? So in my opinion and the opinion of a lot of other people I was reading on this subject, Hillary should have worn a lot more blue. She would have seemed a lot more trustful, especially during the debates. Mm. Interesting. And another thing, too, if we're on the, the topic of anchoring and, um, and conditioning, we get to the, the vocal inflections. And we see one thing that's just, just fascinating about Donald Trump is the way he always says the same words in the exact same way. Um, and, you know, let's take China, which is my favorite. China. He always says it in the exact same China. way. And he, when he says billion, I don't know if you've ever noticed the way he says billion, but he says billion in like a really, <laughs> like a really pointed way because man, when, that's just from the video <laughs> games he played when it was, you know, <laughs> and, he was learning how to make money. <laughs> and when you, the thing about it though, is that these are important words. These are you know, words that in, when he's saying billion, he's trying to point out that this is big because it's easy to just say, you know, 45 billion or billions and billions and just pass over it. But when you say it in a very distinct and very different way and you're uh, trying to attach the emotional context of the moment to it that they can recall later, I could see this is, um, you know, a lot of anchoring going on right there. And, um, uh, the, all the people at his rallies, when he says those words, end up. Those are the those are the points where they're cheering. Those are the points where they're whipped back up into that frenzy, and um, you're, he's able to get them into that that emotional state again. And as we've talked, as we mentioned earlier, it's all about you know getting people back into the emotional state that bypasses that critical part of their mind that's trying to analyze whether this is trustworthy or not. The thing about using a particular vocal inflection as at the same time as you have an emotion is that it can be both a conscious response or it could also be an unconscious response. So, you know, with the example of such a common word such as billion, that could be more of an unconscious response. Sure, the person might notice, oh, Donald Trump, he really knows how to say it, but they don't quite file that away as this is the slogan. Right. But when he says something like make America great again, that becomes then a a motto, a repeated thing that he, you know, he doesn't even need to say the last word. Right. And know that when he says it, he doesn't say make America great again. He says make America great again. Yeah. And it's again. Because because we got to get it great again. We're not a great now, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's it, it's amazing. At, you know, as we have that, you know, make America great. You don't have to say the last word. Mm-hmm. You're the already people there. are going to fill it in in their minds. They're already in the fury. They're already in the frenzy. They're already in the you know the uh, nineteen. <laughs> 
you know, whatever year rally, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting whipped up, whether it's a Hitler or a Mussolini or a, or a Winston Churchill, right. you know, and, and whatever that rally is. And the way that he's sort of artfully vague in everything that he says around that, he's whipping them into that emotional state while also being vague enough that everybody can sort of paint their own picture of what making America great again means. And that means something very different, I think, to maybe the Wisconsin factory worker, um, to the uh, Missouri farmer, to, you know, the, uh, the, the, the southern, you know, plantation owner. Um, it's completely different. Um, and, and he's sort of able to whip people up into that emotional frenzy to where they're no longer critically evaluating what he's talking about. And meanwhile, everything that he's saying, they're agreeing with because they're they're just no longer thinking about it. And, you know, I say it like this, but it's and it seems like, oh, no, no, no. People are always thinking about the stuff that's being said, like, how does this get passed? But it happens at such a nuanced level that I think that it's it's sort of hard to talk about in simplistic terms that. Yes, people on some level are thinking about it, but what's actually driving the changes in their thinking might be something else. It might be something deeper. Yeah, they they have an emotion, and then it's not like, okay, we have a thought, and then we decide how we're going to feel about it. No, we have the feeling first, and then we we go backwards and we find out and we rationalize, right? This is the process of rationalization to say, because I feel this, this is then what I'm thinking. So by the time the, you know, analysis of the thought comes, comes around, they've already decided emotionally how they're going to feel about it. Right. That's fascinating. Um, and that's really what, what, um, sort of builds those emotional connections to the politicians then too, because now you've got, now you're, you've, you've already built that connection. You've already decided that you support that person and that's going to be reinforcing in the future. And, and that's also what happens that, you know, when we were talking about that whole thing of Hillary versus Bernie and when a person, you know, makes up their mind to to, to um, go with someone, I think one of the things that happened in the primary is that certain people, they got kind of filed into these camps. I'm a Hillary person. I'm a Bernie person. Okay. Bernie bro. Or a Bernie. Well, that's, that was a subcategory, right? <laughs> so, right. So it could okay. be a Bernie bro, you know, it could be a Bernie something other than a bro. But uh so, you know, they got sorted into those different things and they self-identified with it. And as soon as they self-identified with it, it became hard for all of the Bernie people to say, oh, I guess Hillary won the election. Now I'm going to vote for her. If they didn't dislike her that much, then fine. You know, they, they, they would go along with it. And they would say, well, I, I like her more than I like him. Right. Mm-hmm. But there was a sense of, ooh, the person who I really wanted to win is not going to win now. Mm-hmm. And now we're really tapping into something interesting, which is sort of bypassing down to the identity level. And it's, um, and I want you to talk a little bit more about that because I think once, um, 
like you said, once somebody starts identifying themselves as uh, as that supporter, it does become a lot harder to change. But what is so powerful about creating identity level change? Like how difficult is that to change? And um, and how does it come about? Like how could Hillary change their identities? How could the Hillary people change their identities? Yeah. Is there any getting through to them after that? How powerful is once something's like embedded at the identity level, how do you change that? There's a big power in having someone vote as a registered Republican or as a registered Democrat, because once they have committed to that, once they've said, hey, this is what I am, the likelihood then that they're going to vote that way is, you know, significantly increased. Um, you know, there, there are people out there, they don't even need to watch the news. Okay. They don't need to do anything. They go to the voting booth. They go to their polling place. They look there and they see the one with the R next to it and they vote for them. I mean, you know, in most local elections, right. You know, in being honest, do we really, most of us know, who is it that we're going to vote for in the local elections? Who we're going to vote for for this little seat or for that other, you know, smaller seat? Have we gone and watched hours and hours of recordings or footage, you know, to really compare who those people are and what they're all about? No. Mm -hmm. They just take the flyer from the party. Yeah, exactly. We've got a little shortcut there. It has an R or a D next to it, and it says, well... Depending on what that thing says is how I'm going to vote. Okay, so so that that is kind of depressing, really. But <laughs> it's it, it, that's how powerful identity is. And, is a, it, and a little bit more about the the, the identity there is that uh, back on the campaign, we would um, always try our best to um, identify the person as a supporter. Um, right from the outget, I know you are a, um, you know, you're someone who cares about your community and, uh, you know, cares about this issue, um, and then dive into the hard ask and actually make that ask. So when your very first interaction with everybody blank slate, you might even know that they are not a supporter, but by sort of providing them with that label, right. When you start talking to them that that in and of itself creates a little bit of that identity change. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. It's like once a person is said, and this goes the same also for issues that if a person says, Hey, here's my stance on an issue because these days you got to have a stance on everything. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, where are you on all of the ver- various issues? Well, I'm for that or I'm for this or I'm against this or I'm against that. Right. And and once you've put it out there, once you've said that this is what it is, and you know, if you make a Facebook post about it or if you talk to your friends about it, it's gonna be a little bit odd if the next week you come in talking to your friends or sharing on Facebook the opposite view. Mm-hmm. People don't want to do that. So they're gonna to continue to believe the same thing only so that they can remain consistent with their own views. Right. And you know that that is absolutely um absolutely core to this thing because then what they're going to do is something absolutely magical which is that they're going to take what they already said that they believed and they're going to find all of the reasons to support their own belief 
You know, so if if you no matter what you believe, you will find the four people in the world who agree with you. Okay? <laughs> no matter what you believe. There are people out there who believe exactly the same thing as you do. Mhm. And I think um one really interesting thing sort of on this topic too is sort of that building those relationships and finding those people. I think that um a big campaign strategy um I, I don't know this was probably pioneered on the Obama campaign but um sort of the the triangle of a persuasion conversation when you're talking to a voter is you're not trying to persuade the the voter on the specific issue just blatantly like hey here x y and z fact 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 why you should support this candidate and why you should support this issue the primary goal of somebody who's going up and knocking on a door or making a phone call is to build a personal connection and they get up there and the idea is that the voter has sort of this abstract idea of the politician they've got this you know the thing that they've heard from their friends they've heard from their family the candidate is out there somewhere in the ether as an idea in their mind what they've got right in front of them is a real live human and you need to first build a connection between you and them so ask them what issue is most important to you they tell you and surprise surprise that issue is also most important to you as well and um, you give reasons why that issue is also important to you and why you care about that as well uh, sort of building that personal connection maybe share a little bit about your family share a bit, little bit about your life and how that issue has impacted you and then make that the reason why you're supporting that candidate and so now we've sort of built that weak link and sort of transmitted whatever sort of po positive uh, relationship, that positive association that you've got between yourself and this voter, and you've transferred a little bit of that up to that candidate. And um, that sort of builds uh, what they would call the triangle and, um, and was the most effective way of actually persuading a voter to support a candidate. Yeah, I, I don't believe that most people actually have really, really set in stone things about most issues, okay? There are some in which it's like, you know what, I'm just not going to go this way or that way on, you know, that particular issue. But instead, I think that it's a war of information that depending on the information that that person has gotten or received from others, depending on what they've actually taken in, it shapes what they think about that particular issue, but the reason why identities and ideas that the person can kind of frame themselves as to say, I believe in this, and that's what I believe in, and mm -hmm. I'm going to make a stand, or I'm going to sign a petition, or I'm going to sign a pledge, that stuff is so huge because then the person doesn't want to go back on that. You know, they've, they've put in writing or mm -hmm. they put in words a commitment. They don't want to go back on the thing that they already said they I am pro-life. Right. Or I am pro-choice, right? The same mm -hmm. thing. Right. You know, that the uh, the person actually can can have such a, a strong thing within it. And, you know, even, you know, the most, so, you know, you ask a pro-choice person, you know, are you in favor of killing babies? 
You know, it's like, no, I'm not in favor of killing babies. You know, I don't know one one person that does. But we know that that's not the substance of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like pro-choice people, the conversation is about a woman, right? What is the tagline? A woman's right to choose, right? It's about women's rights. Okay, pro-life people. What is that about? It's about being able to preserve life. It's about religious tradition. It's about, um, you know, a soul being lost. Okay. They're two different discussions, mm-hmm. right? It just so happens that they converge on one on one issue. And, you know, the thing that, that keeps people so divisive about it is that they're not having the same conversation. They're not really talking the same language. Right. And um, it's sort of what I love about this, this whole thing of um, of identities is that it sort of it makes me think of like uh, like Schrodinger's issue, like until like people in their minds don't think of themselves a lot of the time as identifying with a certain stance, the average person. But as soon as they're forced to make that decision and and explicitly say it, or they're confronted with that, or somebody um, says that they are this type of person, then that becomes self-reinforcing. And then that sort of brings it into the world and into their mind and then attaches itself um, and it's, it's, and it's damaging on a human level, you know, have, having a person actually believing that about themselves, no longer are they free to be a human being. Now they have to limit themselves to their scope of that issue and it limits their conversation as well. Right. And maybe why, you know, it becomes impossible to, to, to sort of change minds, um, sometimes, um, as I think more and more in the world now we're seeing, we're seeing people sort of get into their silos where they are this type of person and they're only associating with other people who are that way. I think, uh, I remember hearing all the stories about, um, about the dating world and how, um, people just refuse to date people of the other side. Um, and that's becoming more and more prevalent these days. People just won't associate with people who label themselves one way or the other. But you see, that, that's exactly the type of thing we need to do to make the country healthy, right? We need to take conservatives, and we need to take liberals, and we need to make them procreate so they can <laughs> produce moderate babies. You know, this is how it's going to be. That's what's going to save right. the country. <laughs> all right. We can end, end the podcast then. Is, <laughs> that's Absolutely. the solution to all our problems. Yeah, but this this has been a good uh, a good discussion. I think a good start on you know what what this whole podcast is going to be about, right? Which is you know we're looking at these various factors, the things that influence the political process and also the personal process. How is it that a person actually makes their decision? You know, so if you here's here's my challenge to everyone listening to this right now. If you would consider yourself. I am a Democrat, okay? Or if you would consider yourself, I am a Republican, right? Consider in which ways do you feel like that gives you power? It gives you strength in your life or resourcefulness? And in which ways does it actually take it away that you identify yourself so strongly with that particular in a way of being? How have you been influenced Right. And this is what's happening on both sides. You know, it's just what's happening. How have you been influenced because you've committed to that label? Okay. And I, I, w- I would look into that. 
That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us at our website at subliminallycorrect.com. And if you love this show and want to contribute, visit our Patreon in the show notes and become a friend of the show. Thank you and tune in next time.